Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4? And let me ask, as you're turning there, what do we need in suffering times? What do we Christians need in suffering? We need our Bibles, yes. We need God himself, yes. We need truth, sure. We need the Holy Spirit at work, absolutely. But one answer to that question, what we need in suffering times, is to say we need each other. That's what the book of 1 Peter tells us. We've been studying this part of the Bible for this calendar year, 2013, working our way through it and coming closer and closer to the end. 1 Peter, as we've been seeing, is a letter about how to think and live as Christians in suffering times, especially in persecuted times. So last week, we looked at chapter 4, 1 through 6, and then another section, verses 12 and following of chapter 4. And these two passages really say the same things in different ways. And really, these two passages make up sort of the key passage on suffering in the book of 1 Peter. We skipped verses 7 through 11 last week on purpose to put two similar passages together into one message. But this week in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, we see a key passage on the church being the church. And you have to wonder, why is there this suffering sandwich with the church in the middle? Is this just like a, a throw-in little parentheses on the church that we'll look at today? Is Peter's main point suffering, but oh, he's an apostle. He probably should say something about the church. I guess I'll put it here. No, of course not. No, we have to see that this treatment of the church that we'll look at today serves Peter's main purpose in writing. He's telling us that we need each other in suffering times. We need the church. We need the covenanted community of Christ. We need people who are committed to us and committed to our good. We were made to go together. Peter's already talked about our love for each other. He's already given us a theology of the church in chapter 2. He told us that we were like living stones being built together to make up a holy dwelling place for the worship of God and the presence of God. We go together like bricks. They're made to go together. They have purpose. They're made to make something, build something. And we build up a place for God's presence. We are his temple and we are his priests in the temple doing his worship work. Now in chapter 4, he gets specific about what it looks like when the church lives life out together. He's given a theology of the church already. Now he tells the church what it should be and what it should do. And what it should be and what it should do specifically in times of suffering. What he'll tell us today is that we need each other in suffering times. And that's why there's a suffering sandwich around this bit that we'll look at today about the church. So tell us more, Peter. Tell us more. What should our perspective be as the church? And what is God calling us to in our relationships with each other in the church? And what motivates us to do what he calls us to do? Answer, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand, Peter writes. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter, in this passage, gives us a perspective. He gives us a calling, a fourfold calling, and then he gives us our motivation. First, our perspective. What should our perspective be in suffering times? The end is here. The end is here. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Peter has talked about the end many, many times in this letter. By my count, there are 20 verses in 1 Peter which touch on Jesus' return or the judgment at the end, what we call the consummation of all things. 20 verses touch upon that. I recently saw a list that someone compiled about how frequently Jesus' return is mentioned in the New Testament. Listen to some of these stats. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is about Jesus' return. 300 times the New Testament talks of it. There are only 260 chapters in the New Testament and 300 mentions of Jesus' return. One-twentieth of the New Testament is about the second coming of Christ. Only four of the 27 New Testament books don't mention it. That means 23 out of 27 do. It's kind of a big deal, isn't it? It's not a big deal to us so much. It's easy for us to not think about it, I think. It's easy for it to slip to the periphery, especially when you're not in certain Christian circles that sort of obsess about getting the chronology of the end right. When you're not in one of those kind of churches, perhaps it's too easy for it to slip off of our radar. More specifically, back to 1 Peter, verse 7, Peter puts a finer point on the timing here in this verse. He says, the end of all things is at hand. It's near. It's within grasp. You have to wonder, was Peter wrong? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. Is Peter one of those guys who predicted Jesus' coming to be near? Less specific than, you know, that pamphlet I read when I was in junior high, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And then the revised version in 1989. 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. More recently, Harold Camping, a radio preacher, predicted May 21st, 2011, for the return of Christ. May 22nd, he said, oops, I was off by five months. He didn't carry the one or something. I don't know. <laughs> so it was October then, and, and then there was no word from Harold Camping after October came and went until six months later when he wrote a blog post saying that Trying to predict the coming of Jesus is probably not a good idea. 
hate to say we told you so, Harold, but yeah, you're right. The Mayan calendar, of course, more, more recently talked about the end time being December 21st, 2012. And all these have come and gone. Is Peter like one of these mistaken prophets of doom? And hence, is the Bible mistaken? Because Peter said the, the return of Christ, the end, is at hand. And here we are 2,000 years later. The answer, of course, is no. No, Peter wasn't mistaken. But we don't solve the problem, or we don't crack this nut by believing that the Lord's return has always been imminent on an any-second kind of level. The Lord's return has always been close. It's not always been just a second away, like many of us have been taught, like I was taught as a kid. You see, the Bible also talks about certain things that have to take place before Jesus will return. For instance, in John 21, Jesus told Peter that he will grow old and die. So Peter had 30 years, 35 years there between the Lord's ascension and and then dying that needed to happen before the Lord would return. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, that was predicted by Jesus in Mark 13. That had to be fulfilled before he would return. He also said that the gospel will be preached in all the world and then the end will come, Matthew 24. We know from Revelation 5 that one day in heaven there will be a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. However, God conceives through John the Apostle of what tongues and tribes and cultures are, we know the gospel is going to spread more before the Lord returns. And that's partly why we go get them. That's why we spread it abroad. Yes, Jesus could come back in our lifetime. His coming could always be soon. But the Bible doesn't teach that he could have come back any of the seconds between now and his ascension. Instead, the Bible tells us that we are now in the last days. We are now in end times. And we have been since Jesus' resurrection. The Bible doesn't always talk like this, but sometimes it does. Sometimes it says, like in Acts 2, that the last days are now. When Peter's preaching there, he quotes Joel, and he says, In the last days it will be, God says, that he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh, and their sons and daughters will prophesy. And what was happening in Acts 2 with tongues of fire and nations getting saved, Peter said, that's what Joel was talking about when he talked about last days. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he also says that the Old Testament stories, they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Or in 1 Timothy 3, he says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, which looks like it's a future thing, but then he goes on to describe what was a present tense difficulty that the church in Ephesus was facing. In Hebrews 1, it says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is coming and living and teaching, dying and being raised. These are all part of the last days, according to Hebrews 1. Jesus appeared, Hebrews 9 says, once at the end of the ages to put away sin. And 1 John 2, one more, tells us that it's the last hour right now. First century times and now, 
And you know it's the last hour, John says, because you've heard Antichrist is coming. Capital A, Antichrist. Well, I tell you, there are also many Antichrists who have already come. So we know that it is the last hour. We could go on with other references. I think that's what Peter's getting at when he says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. It has been since Jesus' resurrection. The end is here. It's now. And it will continue to be until the end, capital E, end, comes. There will be one. There will be a final end. To say now is the end, the final hour, the last days, the end of the ages. To say that that's now is not to say that there won't be no real end, there will be no final end to come, but it is to say that we're in the fourth quarter. And we don't know how long this quarter will be. Kind of like a soccer game. I still haven't figured this out. I was hoping someone would tell me after first service how this works, but I know in a soccer game it looks like it's done, but then there are these minutes that get added on at the end. You don't know how many there are. Maybe someone knows. Maybe someone will tell me. I don't get it. It seems like an indefinite length of game. And a slow-moving game at that. Well, it's kind of like that with with Jesus' return, but, but even more so. We don't know when he'll come back. We don't know how long this fourth quarter is, but we know we're in it. And just knowing that we're in the fourth quarter changes how we live and in the strategy for the plays that we play. So there's urgency in Peter's perspective, even though it may not mean his return is any second imminent. Even though it may mean that the Lord goes on another thousand or two thousand years before his return, we don't know. We shouldn't be surprised if that's the case because Second Peter 3 tells us that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He doesn't work on our timetable. He doesn't view this waiting period like, like we do. We think 2,000 years, and he said it'd be soon. He had to be wrong. The Bible's wrong. But no, with him, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. And yet, it could be soon. We're in the fourth quarter, and so we don't forget that, that Peter has just talked to us about Noah, the days of Noah. Remember that back in chapter 3 when he said, God's long-suffering patience waited in the days of Noah before the judgment came. But it didn't wait forever. Eventually the waters came. And Peter likens that to our situation. Eventually the Lord will come back. There will be a flood of judgment again someday, but not a flood of water, a flood of undiluted wrath. In suffering times... We need perspective. And here's the time perspective that we should live in. The end is now. We're in the fourth quarter. But secondly, Peter talks to us about our calling. Our calling. And it's a fourfold calling that he gives us in verses 7 to 11. And really, this calling is in contrast to that list of sins that we saw last week. Look at chapter 4 in verse 3. Those sins that were common in first century Roman culture and often went together in the same kind of practice. It says in the middle of that verse, what the Gentiles want to do, that is, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised you don't go along with this anymore. So one commentator, Edmund Clowney, he writes about the contrast that we're going to see this week in our verses 7 through 11. He says here, Peter presents the positive side of the contrast in lifestyle. Not drunken debauchery and license, but sober clear-headedness marks the Christian. Love, not lust, fills his heart. The Christian home is open for hospitality, not orgies. Ministry replaces exploitation. So a fourfold calling. First, it's serious for prayer. We're called to be serious for prayer. The rest of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In light of the Lord's return, in light of the suffering that you face, not to mention in light of the salvation, if you want to zoom the lens out even further, in light of the salvation that you've received, you've been adopted, right? You have this inheritance in heaven waiting for you. You're being kept by God's power. In light of that salvation, in light of the suffering all around you, and in light also of the seasons and times that you live in or the second coming. Be serious for prayer. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be in your right mind. Be clear-headed. Have your wits about you. Be thoughtful. Be rational. Be stayed. Don't let suffering or the Lord's return be realities that bring about a frenzy of worry, a, a tizzy of worry. On the other hand, don't let, the, don't let the seriousness of these times or the seriousness of the suffering be overlooked. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind, he said in chapter 1. You've got to get ready, be prepared. He'll say in chapter 5, verse 8, the devil is running around this place like a roaring lion seeking whom he'll devour. He says again there, be sober because of that. Be vigilant. But here he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now notice that praying isn't exactly commanded here. It's assumed. It's assumed, which I think hits us more powerfully even than if it had been commanded by Peter. I mean, the Bible commands us to pray in other places. But here Peter just assumes Christians pray. Christians want to pray. Christians want to pray better. They, they want to grow in this. So... Be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Just like he said in chapter 3, verse 7, the husbands, live with your wives in understanding ways. Be gentle to them. Honor them that your prayers may not be hindered. He just assumes husbands want to pray and want to pray better. But what's the relationship between self-control sober-mindedness, and prayer. Well, I think a lot of things could be said. I can't help but think of how it might relate to our culture today of ever-shrinking concentration. Surely you've seen some of the same headlines I have. Is Google changing our brains? Scientists are saying more and more that our brains are getting remapped in some ways. Things flow differently now, this side of smartphones, than they did before. 
We think differently. And one of the side effects, yes, is handy technology. You can Google anything you want. And yet, we're lacking concentration. We can't think of words. I'm doing that on purpose. It's not really hitting very well, but... uh, trying to demonstrate my lack of concentration. but Now, why is prayer so hard for us? Prayer's been hard in every age of the church. It's not just our age. You know, even the disciples, they're with Jesus. The night he's going to be betrayed. He says, can't you keep watch and pray with me for one hour? They fall asleep three times. It's hard for them to pray, to pray long, to pray well. It's hard in every age. But no doubt, we're facing something unique. I wonder if we need some measure of self-control in sober-mindedness applied to our use of technology for the sake of our praying? Could it be that we don't pray long because we don't pray through thumbs? And that's what we do these days. We do thumbs, right? You ever had your smartphone disappear for a while? Your thumbs start twitching. You don't know what to do. You're like a smoker who smoked 30 years and and they quit and they say, I don't know what to do with my hands. What do you guys do with your hands all day? Right? Could it be that it's hurting prayer? Could it be that our culture today, which is more and more obsessed with entertainment, especially comedy, I love to laugh. I like funny movies. But I think, especially my generation on down, we're, we're obsessed with what's trite. We're obsessed with the meme, the, the latest YouTube clip. We're sarcastic. We're, we're giddy. Could it be that being sober-minded for boys, let me put it in that term, boys like me means get serious. Be serious. Not all the time. That doesn't mean don't ever look up a funny fail on YouTube. But, but, but is there a time when you can be serious? Or is that just weird for you? In light of your salvation, in light of suffering times, in light of the second coming, also be strenuous in love. Verse 8. Strenuous in love. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And here's where we get to this, really the kernel of being the church and doing what the church is supposed to do. He says here, above all, keep loving one another. Above all, not that it's the only thing the Bible tells us to do. But it is often a top of the list, you could say. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Faith, hope, and love, all good things. The greatest is love. He said, if he could have every spiritual gift, but not love, he'd just be an obnoxious noise. Jesus said that the two greatest commandments, the whole summary of the Old Testament law, of God's ways and his wants for us, Two things, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love for neighbor, the second greatest commandment, according to Jesus, love for each other in the church is how the world will know that we're his disciples, John 13 tells us. And in 1 John, we see that love for brothers and sisters is this litmus test as to whether God's love for us is really in our hearts and real. By my count, 20 times, 1 John talks about love for brothers and sisters in the church and uses it 
in this kind of litmus test way. We know that we have the real love of God in us if we love the church. We should love one another earnestly or strenuously. Earnestly in the Greek literally means stretched out. It was a term used of athletes who would strain. Imagine straining at the end of a race, straining for that tape to win. That's at the end of a race. It's a moment in time. It's maybe a second. But Peter says, keep doing that. You know that strain at the end of the race? You know that sprint that almost lose your balance to get to the tape first? Keep loving each other like that in that stretched out and strenuous way. We could put it in these terms, love hard. They don't seem to go together, do they? We think of love in maybe more warm and fuzzy feeling sort of ways. But according to this and other parts of the Bible, love is hard. That's why it's hard. The Bible tells us that love is work. It isn't warm and fuzzy feelings, though often those warm and fuzzy feelings are like a a caboose at the end of, of the love train. But there's an engine at the beginning where things are spinning and churning and heating up and torquing and cranking. It's work. It's work because of our sin. Love for others needs to be strived for, worked at, because we don't love like we should. Our love is broken. Our, our love factory is twisted. It's being restored, yes, as Christians, we're forgiven and on a path of restoration to be more like what God created us to be, and eventually we will. But until then, there's sin fighting against it. The flesh lusts against the Spirit so that you don't do the things that you wish, Galatians 5 says. But love is also hard because of other people's sins, right? It's doubly hard because people sin against you. It's not just that you're bad, or broken, it's that others are too, and we are called to live alongside them. So that's why Peter says, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is how love is demonstrated. Love isn't just merely this feeling. Here's one of the ways in which love is shown. Forgiveness. Covering sins. Notice that word picture, covering them. Like, just imagine burying them, you know, putting them under. The Lord does that with our sins. He covers a multitude of our sins, many more than we will ever forgive in others. Sometimes the Bible talks about exposing sin, yes. But here, this is what the church does. It covers sins, by and large, with each other. That's not totally true. There, there are other verses about confronting and We have to keep those in mind. Peter doesn't mention that here. We know them. We know that there is a time to rebuke or reprove, right? To exhort, to confront. If your brother sins against you, go to him, Matthew 18 says. But in the Bible, we should know this. In the Bible, there are two options when we're sinned against. We either confront or we cover. There is no third option. We'd like to think that There is. Too often, I think that there is. I think a third option in my own heart and mind at times is to be sinned against and defile it away for another day. 
write a little IOU, but actually it's a you owe me. Sin against me, you owe me. Put it in the pocket. You owe, another day goes by, you owe me. And they keep going. And then eventually my pocket will get aggravating enough that I'll say something to you about it. That's not what the Bible talks about with either covering or confronting. There are no tabs in the church. There's no accruing debt in the church. Our debt was canceled once and for all. And so even quietly being offended is not the same thing as covering sin. Proverbs says it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory. It's godlike to overlook an offense. And yet, I know you're thinking, but Ryan, you said there is a time to confront. You, you quoted Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him. So how do you know when to confront and when to cover? It's not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes it's good to bounce it off of a friend without telling them the name of the person who has sinned against you. Otherwise, you commit a sin called gossip. But it's difficult to know when to confront and when to cover. But here's some guidelines just to think through. Was the sin against me blatant? Was it intentionally hurtful? Is there a pattern of this sin in this person? Is this pattern of sin hindering fellowship between me and this person? If the answer to those kind of questions is yes, then lovingly confronting is probably the right thing to do. Well, you could ask other questions. Is confrontation of this person's sin for my sake or for theirs? Is it for my glory or for Christ's? Is the goal of confrontation to show them they're wrong or to show them how to grow? Is it for their growth? Would I want to be held to the same scrutiny? If the answer to some of these is yes, then, then maybe we confront. If it's no, then, then maybe we cover it. And by covering again, I don't mean that we, we simply buried away, nor that we don't confront because we're afraid. We don't confront because it might mean trouble, it'll ruffle feathers, they'll be mad, it'll be complicated. No, 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 that stuff, that's a given. It'll take work. In Philippians 4, Yodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church who have funny names, they're told to get along. Get along. And, and Paul refers to a, a, a separate party, a third party, to say, help them out. It's messy. It can sometimes go long, but you need to do it. We need to do it. But we don't avoid it simply because someone might get mad. But otherwise, when we can, where we love to do this, we, we should love to do this. We should love to bury sins. We should love to cover them up for Christ's sake. Having been loved, we love. Having been forgiven much, we forgive. And that's why Jesus can say things like, the same measure you forgive others, it'll be forgiven you. If you don't forgive others, you don't have my forgiveness. That's not earning his forgiveness by forgiving others. That's instead a litmus test saying, you don't really know what it's like to be forgiven a ton unless you have some semblance of forgiving others a little. If you're not a Christian, please, in all I'm saying this morning, don't hear me laying out 
certain steps to better living, or certain things you have to do to get God's love and forgiveness. No, we believe that Jesus died in our place to cancel our debt. He lived righteously and offers us that righteousness to be received through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And when we receive that kind of forgiveness based on the cross of Christ, we're changed. He's given us a new heart. That's what caused us to believe. We're born from above. And now we're starting to resemble the one who gave birth to us in this spiritual realm. And that's why we want to love. And that's why we want to forgive. Because we've been loved and we've been forgiven much. We love like that and we forgive like that also knowing that Jesus is coming back. We know that suffering is real. It's rough out there. And it may get rougher This is no time for us to be nitpicky. Love covers a multitude of sins. Related to love and forgiveness is that we should be happy for hospitality. Happy for hospitality. He says in verse 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Love is the root. Forgiveness is a fruit. And so is hospitality. Hospitality is a fruit of love. It's a concrete expression of our love for each other. By hospitality, the Bible means sharing home, sharing food, and sharing hearts. Sharing lives, you could say. This is simply what Christians do. Maybe you've heard before, Christians are people of the book, meaning the Bible. May they always say that of us. May it always be so. Well, you could say it too, like this. Christians are people of the table. They're people of the table. They get together, they eat food, and they talk about life, sometimes frivolous things, and also real heart things. This thing might seem like a a simple thing. Like, it's not a religious thing. Why is this in the Bible? That's just a good thing. Or or it's a thing we're going to do anyway. Why is it in the Bible? Why is it commanded? It is commanded. Know that. Here in 1 Peter 4, it's a command. Romans 12, Hebrews 13. On and on it goes. This is what Jesus did when he was on this earth. He walked around, he ate, and he talked. Sometimes he gave a bunch of food and then talked. Sometimes he let people give him food and then they talked. This is what our God will do for us at the end of time when he brings us into his presence. In Revelation 21, when he sets up the new heaven and the new earth and we're with him, he sets up a table and we eat. It's fellowship. It's sharing life. The New Testament says more about hospitality than it does about singing. Did you know that? We sing a lot as a church. I'm glad for it. I love it. But it's interesting, the Bible says more about us getting together in each other's homes than it does about us getting together to sing to and with each other. And yet this important thing is increasingly a neglected thing. We want our privacy, we want to eat alone. A great book that that describes our individualism that's increasingly part of our society, a title called Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone, who bowls alone? 
Some alcoholic bowler does. That's who. But that, otherwise, no one does that. Maybe you have a bowling alley. You bowl alone. But, but bowling is like this community thing. It should be. And like bowling, food and life is supposed to be this thing lived out with others. So hospitality should be something that's planned. It's something that should be pursued. It's something that should be practiced or to get better at it, hopefully. And it's to be promoted, not just taught upon every now and then when we get to a passage like this, but more and more we as a church should want this to be part of our DNA, part of our culture. And you might say, amen, amen, amen. I'm in a community group, and we do that. I don't think this is the same thing as community groups. Uh, If you're not, uh, if you haven't been at Desert Springs long, I'll tell you, we do much of our church life, our life-on-life stuff uh, in community groups. They get together once a week and and eat food, read Bible, talk about Bible, apply the sermon, pray together, discuss things, hold each other accountable, probe in each other's lives, that sort of thing. They share life together. They're off right now for the summer, but in another month or so, you'll hear them start up again, and uh, we'll encourage you to get in one if you're not in one. Well, a community group does a kind of hospitality, but I don't think it does all of what the Bible intends for hospitality. Here's why a community group probably is not what Peter envisions. And that doesn't mean, by the way, let me just insert this qualification. It doesn't mean I'm discouraging community groups. I want you to get in a community group if you're not in a community group. And I want you to do more than just be in a community group. Because here's why more is needed. In a community group, you have the same people week after week. And there's much benefit in that. That's one of the reasons why it's not just, I don't know, scattered to one of these 50 locations. Right? And every week's new people. No, there's something about time together. And friendships and relationships growing. Yes, those relationships in that community group should be diverse. But get this, random acts of hospitality can be as diverse as you want them to be. So the oldest person in your community group is 55 or 60. We've got some octogenarians here. Do you know them? You could be benefiting from the wisdom of 80 years of a godly life. And man, tap into that. They're not in your community group, but right, have them over. Get to know them. Listen to stories of their lives, God's grace in it. In a community group, there's the agreed-upon rotation of food and drinks, and that's wise and pragmatic and good. But that's just a pragmatic sharing of the burden, not costly entertainment that just springs, originates from my own decision and, and heart and desire. In hospitality, we often seek to meet a specific need at a specific time. So we know that person's new. We know that person's going through something really hard. We don't just say, well, they in a community group? Oh, okay, it's handled. No, no. That probably is getting handled in a community group as best it can. But but we want to love them and show that love to them. We want to bear that burden with them as much as we can. We're looking for opportunities to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. A hospitality visit, having someone over in your home is much closer to a one-on-one kind of thing. It's family to family, and it gets more personal when you get smaller in number like that. If community groups 
were the only place in which hospitality happened in our church, then we would be doing a very poor job of making new people feel welcome. And guess what? We are. We are doing a poor job at making new people feel welcome in our church. You say, Ryan, I can't tell who's new and who's not. I can't either. Here's what I do. I go and say hi. And every now and then I put my foot in my mouth. I, how long have you been at Desert Springs? Ten years. Same as you. <laughs> I told you that once before. <laughs> well, now we got a store. We got something we can build upon, right? We, got <laughs> we can laugh about it now. <laughs> I won't forget you now. <laughs> right? Ask them. Just ask. Imagine this. Imagine 10 years from now, Desert Springs Church is known for this. That people say, and you often hear in the street, when you visit Desert Springs Church, someone will inevitably invite you over for lunch that day. You cannot get out of Desert Springs Church on a Sunday morning without getting an invite for lunch. You say, wow, that would be a high standard. I, I know churches like that. Our church in England was like that. Our first Sunday there, we got invited over by a nice couple. At first, I thought, it's just this nice couple. You know, they saw us. We're, we're a cute couple, and, you know, new to the area, and a student. And surely they'd want to have us over, and they're really nice, so that's, this will work. But the whole church was like this. This is what they did. They went around. They looked for new people. They, they said, well, no one's new this Sunday, but we haven't had them over. Come on over. We got a crock pot going. You see, this is important because in hospitality like this, we share life and conversation happens and people feel welcomed as should represent the gospel to those who visit us. Welcomed. God has been hospitable to us. He has opened his, his heart to us. He's opened his home to us. In hospitality, we open our hearts and our homes and friendships begin to grow. And people see you in your home. They learn from you in different ways and learn about you in different ways when they're in your home. We get to bless those who are in need. We get to, we get to know that 20-year-old that has had too much stinking ramen noodles for any one person's lifetime. And let's, let's get him over for a steak, a really good steak. Man, I remember early days of marriage. I was in seminary. It was just Sarah and I. We were both working. I was plugging along in school, and we were dirt poor. Our first year of marriage, I think we made 13000 Our second year of marriage, we made $17,000. Uh, and, and that wasn't the 50s, guys. It was, you know, just the late 90s. And there were so many meals where we thought, if this people, if we didn't have this much hospitality this week, we would have missed a meal. We would have missed a meal. We imitate God when we meet needs, when we show random acts of kindness, when we show his love in concrete ways. Yeah, the house doesn't have to be spotless to do this. It doesn't have to be a fancy meal. It doesn't have to be a brilliant conversation. You don't have to have a, one of those giant blow-up things in your backyard to have kids over at your house. The goal is open homes and open hearts. And even still, this will be sacrifice, won't it? 
that's why Peter says, practice hospitality without grumbling, without complaining. Don't, crum- don't grumble after you invite, but then have to go buy more food. Don't grumble when they're there, when you sneak off to the bathroom and roll your eyes that they're strange. <laughs> oh, you've been there, you know. Don't grumble when the conversation turned into bearing burdens. When you invite someone over, you invite dice into the picture, right? It's roulette. You don't know if it's going to be laughs or tears or something in between. You don't know if you'll get back what you put in. That's okay. Jesus said in Luke 14, don't throw a banquet just for those who will pay you back. Don't be offended if they don't invite you over. But it does cost us, and it costs us even financially to have people in our homes and for meals to be bigger than they otherwise would be with just our families, which means hospitality should probably be factored into your budget. Or your budget should feel more tight than it otherwise would because hospitality is in it. It's okay for money to feel tight because of hospitality. It's okay also for things to be cut for hospitality. It's okay for things in our schedules to be cut in order to have hospitality and to do hospitality. If you're too busy to have people over, you're too busy. Church, we can do better at this. We must do better at this. Not because the Bible gives us a command and we should obey it. and Not because well, we really should look better in our community than we do. We should do better at this because it's the fourth quarter. And Jesus is coming back. I mean... It's scary out there. It's getting scarier out there. Are we going to wait until imprisonment is a reality for Christians for us to huddle up in homes together? Is that what we're waiting for? we got to now talk together, hang out together, care for each other, meet needs. There's so much suffering in the body even now. We have to get together and practice hospitality. We also have to be strategic about service. It's related. We have to be strategic about service. This is part of our calling. In verse 10, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each has received a gift. Each Christian. If you have grace, you also have a gift. The Greek words are very similar. Charis, grace. Charisma, gift. If you have grace, you have gift. Every Christian has a gift. There's varied gifts because of God's varied grace. We're not all the same way, not all cut out of the same mold. The Bible gives us several lists of spiritual gifts, but no two are exactly the same. That's on purpose, I think. We're not supposed to add up all the lists, put together a master list of 15 or so, and then look at one and go, that's me. That's my assignment for the rest of my life. No, no, no. Each list is a sampling. We'll see in in verse 11 here, Peter's sampling is only two. He breaks spiritual gifts down into two. He's just showing us different kinds and samplings. The point is that every Christian has been gifted in his or her own unique way with this thing, these things that are part natural. You were born with them. You had a bit of it when you were not a Christian. And, and part, of them, part of it's supernatural. It's something that got spiritually energized when you became a Christian. So don't think you have nothing to give the church. That impugns the grace of God. Grace, gift. 
Don't envy those with other gifts. Varied grace. He's the grace giver. He's the gift giver. Each part does its part, and each part must do its part for the body to function like it's supposed to do. We don't say pinkies aren't important. We don't say fingernails don't matter. We say that until we lose one, and then, ouch. We don't look down on those who do something else, and we don't think either that we only have one thing to give. It's really important for us to think through what we're good at or what we like the best, what we feel energized by, where we best fit in the body of Christ. It's good for us to think about that. But it's also good for us to not just think about that, but also to think about where does the church have a need, a, a hole? Where can I plug a hole? I love it when people come to our church and say, tell me where the biggest hole is. And they'll say, hmm, well, that's not my strong suit, but I can do that. I can plug it a little. I, I'll do it. I love that. You see, we're stewards. Good stewards we're to be. That word steward is a servant who's put in charge of a master's goods, assigned with a particular task of managing or distributing those goods. It's about the master. And yet he gives a gift here and a gift there, gifts varied in, in all over the church. And yet he's also made us jack-of-all-trades. If you got arms, you can push a broom, Right? It need, needs to be met. Let's get it. Let's fulfill it. Let's plug that hole. But it's not about us when we think about our gifts. Don't think that your gift is about you and for you. Imagine that the church is like a garden and God wants to water it and grow it. So one Christian is like a hose in their gift and another Christian has the gift of the sprinkler and another one is a drip line. And another one is a, a watering pot. Well, the flowers and herbs of the garden don't gawk and marvel at the beautiful shape of the watering pots. They don't stare at the length and greenness of the hose. They don't ponder the clever subtlety of the drip line. They want water. They need water. Water is what's most important. Think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There's water applied to the dirty feet, and there's a bowl holding the water. If we personified that bowl, just draw a face on it. Can you imagine it being all smug? I'm the bowl. I'm the bowl here, man. Oh, light shine down on me, spotlight right here. It's just a bowl. And yet without it, the water doesn't stay in one place and the feet don't get washed. That story's not about the bowl. It's not about you, man. It's not about our self-fulfillment when we exercise our gifts. That's actually a boomerang of our gifts. It's not supposed to end on us. It's supposed to go out for others on behalf of God to serve them. To serve. To serve. Now, I think in verse 10, when Peter talks about serving, it's a, just a general term. In that sense, we all serve each other. He's not talking about anything more specific, like serving with hands, lifting that, carrying that, helping here, meeting this need. 
But in verse 11, he does talk about two categories of spiritual gifts. And one there is ser- <clears throat> excuse me, is serving. He says there are speaking gifts and then serving gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks should speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. And the one who serves should serve by the strength that God supplies. Two main categories of gifts in the church. Speaking gifts, those who speak on behalf of God, let their speech be not of themselves, but God's words. Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ crucified. That's what Peter's getting at in verse 11. Whoever serves, serve straining, stretching, beyond your ability, beyond your feelings. Serve in the strength that God supplies. Whether you speak, whether you serve, or whatever you do, do it to God's glory. That's the third thing here. Our motivation, as we wrap this up, Peter gives us a perspective and a fourfold calling, and then he gives us our motivation. It's God's glory in Christ. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When he says in order that, it it points us backwards, right? To what? How far back in the passage do we go? It says in verse 11, we serve in God's strength. And yes, we serve in God's strength in order that God would be glorified. But we could keep going backwards, couldn't we? Also, those who speak, they're to speak the oracles of God in order that God would be glorified, not them. Verse 10 We're all to be stewards of God's gifts, serving others in order that God would be glorified in those needs being met. Show hospitality without grumbling in order that God would be glorified. As Paul said in Romans 11.36, From him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. And the same with 1 Peter 4.11. It's a capstone, an exclamation at the end of a long list here about our high calling. So get this. We could mingle the words of Romans 11.36 and 1 Peter 4.11. And we could say, our love for each other is from him. And it's through him. And it's to him. It's to his glory. Our forgiveness of each other's sins is from him. It is through him. It is to his glory. To his credit. Our hospitality is really from him. What do you have that you have not received? Money, home, table, food. It's from him. It's through him. It is unto him that we do it. Any gifts that we have and any opportunities to serve is from him and through him and to him. And whatever we speak, when we speak to each other like I am now to you or when you'll speak with others after the service, when we speak, we speak on behalf of God to encourage and stir up love because it's from him and through him and to him. And when we serve each other, we serve in a strength that only he can supply because it's from him and it's through him and it's to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it is true. We believe it's what we need. We believe it's sufficient for what we need. We confess that it's 
piercing. Why is it, Father, that when we talk about each other, it so quickly shows us our own sin? So often these kinds of messages are the ones where Christians feel the most pierced in heart, but we pray that conviction would serve your purposes in the gospel to grant repentance and peace and growth. We thank you for pruning us, Father. We thank you for your glory in all things. We thank you for whatever glory we've seen and known throughout this week at VBS, in the service this morning, in our singing, our praying, our reading of your word, the preaching of your word. We pray it would give great glory to Christ. We pray also that it would grant us much joy. We pray you'd water us with the word and cause us to grow. And we pray others here who haven't yet come to see this would, would see in this vision of a church which loves, imperfectly, yes, and prays and forgives and shows hospitality and serves each other in intricate ways with God behind it to your glory. They would see something otherworldly and beautiful, and they would run to you through the blood of Christ, be forgiven of sins, join us in this this thing you've called us to do to represent you in this world. And as often as possible, where we can, to get together like this and to encourage each other in your word and in your ways. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.